sink a Polish battleship? Put it in water. How did the Germans conquer Poland so fast? They marched in backwards and the Polish thought they were leaving. How do you stop a Polish army on horseback? Turn off the carousel. Those Polish military jokes are hilarious because the country has fought and lost many wars over the years. And, according to jokes, Polish people are dumb. Here's a classic. How many Polacks does it take to change a light bulb? Three. One to hold the light bulb and two to turn the ladder. That one is funny enough to be the main example on the light bulb joke Wikipedia page. What's the difference between a smart Polak and a unicorn? Nothing. They're both fictional characters. My childhood was littered with these jokes. But what I never realized when they said Polak, they meant Polak. Polak, Pollock, Polak. Those are the most common variations of my last name. Hint, only one of these is actually correct, as it was explained to me as a child. But for lots of reasons, my last name is rarely ever pronounced the way my family lineage intends. When I was a kid growing up, it made sense to me that Polak was not correct because that was the pejorative. The dumb Polaks that Archie Bunker and kids in the playground blasted into my consciousness. It was made clear to me early on that Polaks were dumb. As I got into high school and college, many people would call me by my last name, which is common amongst sports playing dudes. But it didn't occur to me at the time that when they said it, they were subtly being derogatory toward me. I usually liked the attention because all I ever wanted was to be seen, but looking back, I am realizing, and realizing quite late in life because I am Polish and dumb, I'm realizing some people have said my name with flames attached, while others mispronounce it because to them, Polak is the mean version and they don't want to be mean. I've been in jobs and working with folks for several years and they never get it right despite me passive-aggressively pronouncing it correctly in front of them whenever I can. They tend to like saying Pollock because that's a fish and not a mean word. I have just started to realize the Polish jokes are ubiquitous but the disparaging way to say my name is actually regional. I've recently been reliving many schoolyard experiences, dorm hallway arguments, office introductions over the years. How many folks lobbed my name like a grenade and how many walked around it like a landmine? I spent the majority of my childhood worried that I was a dumb Polak, that it was genetic, that everybody around me saw my name, knew I was dumb, and engaged with me accordingly, friends, teachers, co-workers. How many years does it take a dumb Polak to understand his own name? Turns out it's many. It wasn't just in the United States. The first time I visited the country of Poland, I checked into the hotel, handed my passport to the person at the front desk and watched him look at it. And then at me. And then back at my passport again. And then back at me. Do you know your name literally translates as Polish person? I told him I heard that before. 
he said, giggling. Your name is Brian Polish Person. That's what I am. And I am dumb sometimes, but that has nothing to do with me being Polish. That's just because we're all dumb sometimes. I'm also smart sometimes. I'd like to hear some jokes about the smart Polak. I am Brian James Polish Person. We pronounce it Polak. And I know that makes some folks cringe. I cringe too whenever I have to change a light bulb. But I still do it anyway. And I think one of these days I'm going to try to do it by spinning the ladder with two Polish friends because that sounds kind of fun. Subtext Podcast. My name is Brian James Polak. The Subtext Podcast is brought to you by American Theater Magazine, a program of Theater Communications Group. And this month, I share a conversation with the great Nathan Allen Davis. If you're new to this podcast, welcome. It's great to have you. If you like what you hear, you can check out the dozens of episodes in the archives on americantheater.org. And if you're on any of the social media, you can follow us. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and that other one. Also, if you're a very online person and know how to do such things, please go rate and review the subtext at all the places like Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Nathan Allen Davis has written a ton of plays, including Nat Turner in Jerusalem, The High Ground, Eternal Life Part 1, Origin Story, The Wind and the Breeze, and Dontrell Who Kissed the Sea, and The Refuge Plays, which is currently running at Roundabout Theater in New York City. In recognition of his body of work, Nathan has received a Wyndham Campbell Prize, a Steinberg Playwright Award, and a Whiting Award in Drama, amongst many other recognitions. Nathan is an alumnus of the University of Illinois, Indiana University, and the Juilliard School. He currently serves as Director of MFA Playwriting at Boston University. We recorded this conversation in some hotel bar in Manhattan. I can't remember where we were, to be honest. Anyway, here is me and Nathan Allen Davis from July 2023. So hopefully I am in like, I don't know, in the fall, maybe September. Okay. Yeah. Hang out. I mean, I might be up there. Depending on what day you're there, I might <laughs> I might be in the neighborhood. Yeah. So so what's that like? Tell me about this. So you got hired to to teach playwriting at BU, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's the so what's the setup? You're there for a couple days a week or something? Yeah. Well, I um, I'm there usually three days a week. It kind of depends on the given week. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, full time professor there, so it's kind of weird because we live in New Jersey, in Princeton. Right. But um, with all them moving around and children of multiple ages and all that, right? You know, um, pick up and moving the whole family was not quite on the in the cards, um, yeah. so to speak. But um, but yeah, 
I have an apartment there in Boston. I just started last fall. So, yeah, I'm, I'm there every week, depending on the week. The number of days might vary. But, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's been it's been really cool. And you just road trip up there for... Take the train. It's the yeah. Amtrak, you know. Um, <laughs> the Acela is great. Because I, dro- I drove up there a couple times. Yeah. Not a fun drive. No, the whole Northeast Corridor is, yeah. a, is a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, it was like, I think this is not going to happen. So, the Acela is nice um i mean you can work on the train yeah think on the train it's kind of one pocket of time that's sort of guaranteed i don't know it's like you're going somewhere but you're also semi-trapped right yeah. so it's like it kind of focuses my mind a little bit i actually get a lot of work done mm-hmm. on the train which is great um yeah i used to when i was living in boston years ago i used to uh have to come in this corporate job I had, I used to have to come to Manhattan a lot yeah. and um, flying between Boston and New York is like, it's a super short flight, but everything involved in going to and from the airport in New York is so time consuming that it yep. was essentially the same amount of time to take the Acela yeah. to between the cities because right. just like the, the train stop is, in the city Mm -hmm. you don't have to travel anywhere you just walk in walk on yeah and you're gone i was contemplating that i was like would it be faster to fly like yes but actually no is the answer not when yeah when you factor in all of the airport stuff Mm -hmm. and getting to the airport yeah like boston's airport is not that far but depending on where you're going when you get there it's not as close as back bay station right exactly and then yeah yeah and then like i would fly into newark and that's the whole thing to get out of there, the AirTran, and then is New Jersey Transit running on time? Probably not. Right. So, yeah. Have you been, so you started teaching last fall? Yeah, I started teaching at BU last fall. Um, so I'm now director of the MFA playwriting program yeah. here. And um, I started in fall of 2023. Is it, what year is it now? It's 23 now. Fall twenty two, okay. A have year you f- ago. have you like gotten to know the city of Boston at all? Like, do you even get a chance to? Or are you? I gotta much say, not really yet. Yeah. And most of my experience there is confined to the university. So, um, I am just beginning to know Boston as a city. Yeah. Um. And, you know, BU. It's kind of its own. I mean, it's sort of taken over a large portion of Boston and downtown Um, Boston. Is that even downtown? I guess by the by the river. It's like feels like all of it's kind of downtown. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So it's been a sort of baby steps as to like really feeling. And that is one of the interesting dynamics of being kind of in between places is that you don't have the same feeling of roots in a place. Yeah. And I think like getting an apartment there was important because I felt like I don't want to feel like every time I come up, I'm like a guest and I have to like, you know, rent a hotel or sleep on someone's couch or, you know, whatever. Like I want to feel like I live here. So like I do work that out. Um, when I took the job at BU, but 
Um, but yeah, like this summer I've been home in New Jersey and won't be going back up until until late August. And mm-hmm. then once the semester starts, I'll be up there probably three days a week. Mm-hmm. So it'll be a little bit more Boston centric for me at that time. Yeah. So I remember meeting you. I think first, I think I first met you. I was working at a theater in Pasadena called the Theater of Boston yeah. Court. Yeah, and it's uh, now just called Boston, Boston Court. Court. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Either way, either name, still kind yeah. of whatever. But uh, uh, I worked there for years, and so I was very used to like playwrights rolling through and mm-hmm. even having their play produced or readings or whatever in your your play. Uh, now that now that I'm saying it, like the title Which play was it? I think it was the wind and the breeze. No, it was maybe the wind and the breeze, but th- no, the uh, the one with the ocean. Oh, Dontrell who kissed Dontrell the sea. who yeah. kissed the sea. That's okay. what it was. Okay. Dontrell yeah. who kissed the sea, and uh, it was this beautiful play, and so uh, I I, I kind of met you in passing, but I really met your play first, mm. and then we were coming out of grad school at the same time yep. so we met at the kennedy center so yep. it was like i was like oh mm-hmm. this guy's at the kennedy center i i want to go talk to him so that's when <laughs> i felt like i actually i actually met you yeah and uh and i really liked you yeah like, i liked you too like it was ever since then that i'm just like oh, i want to get to know this person's yeah. work uh better so uh yeah that was before this podcast existed so <laughs> so when this right. podcast started because of that that early meeting yeah. and then i saw a production of of dontrell mm. uh in la at the okay. skylight yeah uh theater and uh it was a great production i don't know if you saw it but they did they, they yeah. did a really good job yeah um and uh and i was like this is a cool it's a cool playwright <laughs> like and so i'm like i'm like i want to collect like these cool playwrights in my life mm. and uh so that brings us all the way to Almost ten years later, here we are sitting in a, in yeah, a bar it is in New York. <laughs> later, almost. That's yeah. I was just thinking about that. Actually, I was just going through my some old boxes the other day, and I realized that I first wrote Dontrell literally ten years ago. I think the first draft yeah. was probably actually twenty twelve, and then it was produced at when I was doing my MFA at Indiana University. It was spring of 2013 yeah. when it had its first like college or university production. Right. So that was actually 10 years ago, and that's strange to think about. Yeah. Before, so before I hit record, you were t- you told me how you were born. You were born in uh in southern Wisconsin, but you grew up in in the Chicago area. Well, I grew up in Rockford, Illinois. Rockford, which is yeah. I mean, I would say Chicago for anybody who didn't have any reference for. And, you know, because it's that's the closest big city, but it's actually not even close enough to be a suburb. Right. Yeah. It's, um, Anybody from Chicago would be like, they'd be like Rockford. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, it's a mid-sized town, either a small city or a large town. Yeah. Um, northern Northern Illinois. I was technically born in Beloit, Wisconsin, only for administrative purposes. Really. <laughs> um. It just alone. It just because I was a C-section baby, and my mother was looking for a place where my father could be in the room during the procedure. Yeah. And the doctors in Rockford weren't allowing that, and there was a hospital in Beloit that did. So 
Therefore, <laughs> I was born in Beloit. Therefore, the administrative birth. <laughs> right. <laughs> Beloit. Right. Um, so, like, what was, when you were when you were young, what was, like, a family life like with regards to, you know, becoming a writer? Like, were you engaged in, in the arts as a kid growing up? Yes. I was a very, I was born into a very artsy family. Yeah. Or art-centric family or a family of artists, however you want to put it. Um, my mother was a mime for a long time. Really? Yeah, yeah. And she's now really more of a writer. Um, yeah. She writes novels and stories and those types of things. Uh, and my father was an actor for a long time and he ended up, both of them ended up getting like regular jobs or were still sort of, I mean, my father worked in, um, for the city of Rockford, yeah, you know, in human services. Um, and my mother ended up working for the arts council, the local arts council. So they had like day jobs, you know, um, regular jobs, but theater and performance was always a big part of their lives and therefore my life. Did you see them perform? Rarely, but Yes. I mean, well, in my mother's case, I saw her do mime shows a lot because she was still doing that when I was when I was born. And my sister and I, she's two years younger than me. We saw, you know, we were actually were part of her mime, some of her mime shows that she did. Yeah. Um, what did you do? I think the first role that I had that I remember was an alarm clock. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, so we're also, we're Baha'is, is our religion, the Baha'i faith, yeah. and there's a Baha'i fasting period in March, um, there was 19 days where you don't eat or drink from sunrise to sunset, mm -hmm. and so my mother did this skit, which is about the fast, and she was waking up early and bringing her food, and she got up too late, and then she made her all her food, then she realized the sun was up and she couldn't eat. And so it, I was the alarm clock in that skit. Um, <laughs> and she snoozed me or something, which is <laughs> the reason why she couldn't eat that day until night. Where, so where would, where would this be performed? Uh, you know, my memories right now are so blurry. I mean, community centers. She did a lot of, she didn't do only like Baha'i specific right. mime skits. That was one that she did for some of the Baha'i community. But... You know, she she performed in parks. Um, she did all kinds of, like, you know, places, mostly outdoors or, you know, like what mimes do. Um, right. Find a place and mime around. Yeah. Um, but I remember, I remember a lot of parks, sometimes community centers. And then my father did, um, I didn't see him act very much because by the time I was born, or at least old enough to remember, he had... He used to be part of the one theater company. It was called New American Theater. That was a professional theater in Rockford, and he was is an ensemble member there. Mm -hmm. He was also part of um, Black Theater Ensemble there. They didn't perform as regularly. They didn't have like a, their own theater. But um, so I saw him perform occasionally, and whenever I saw him perform, I was like, "Oh my gosh, he's really good." Yeah, like he's really talented, and he can sing. And it's interesting just because he. Um, I mean, if he, he would tell you himself, like, 
just the talent of being able to do it isn't really enough to make a life in it, right? Yeah. And I think for him, uh, it just wasn't that much of a priority for him to like rearrange his whole life and you know pursue the arts. And I don't think he even feels like sad about it. It's just like, yeah, it just wasn't really what he was about, you know, um, fully. Um, so, uh, so I, I didn't see him perform a lot, but, but when I did, it left a pretty big impression on me, I guess. Um, and you know, well, there was not a lot of arts or culture happening in Rockford in terms of like, there's very few theaters, there's very few, you know, art museums or that kind of thing, but right. whatever arts was happening there, we were involved in did you feel like it was an inevitability that you know you'd go from being the alarm clock for your mom to getting involved like having a sort of like life in the arts yourself no i don't think so i don't i don't think uh well it's weird because i guess in one way like performance was just part of my life so yeah i don't think i felt like you must carry on the tradition of you know, it was nothing like that. Yeah. It's just that I was, I was certainly comfortable being around it, I guess. And I mean, I don't know. My earliest like involvement in theater was like being the run crew for Oliver, the musical, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, or West side story. I was in West side story at one point when I was younger, not as like a main part, like as, you know, in a chorus or whatever. And I think I really loved being around theater, if that makes sense. Like, the energy of a play happening. That was always very exciting to me. Yeah. Um, so I, I did pursue acting and all that. Um, and I, well, I was acting. I, I acted in Chicago professionally after I graduated from college, you know, for several years. Um, but eventually the writing took hold and that became very clear to me that that was the thing. When did, so what was, what was the impetus to start writing? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, I, I wrote poetry when I was a teenager, I guess who didn't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I got encouragement from teachers and from peers about my writing, whether it was like, you know, fiction or poetry and I felt like it was something I had a talent for from, from a young-ish age mm -hmm. but I don't think I thought immediately oh I'll write plays yeah you know what I mean I, I think um, I remember being in undergrad in college and I had taken kind of a roundabout route there where like I took a year off uh, I took a, a gap year after high school. I did a Baha'i service project for a year, which was also an arts thing. It was like performing arts, mm -hmm. uh, touring around the Midwest and doing performances about racism and, um, you know, like social issues and stuff like that. And, um, and I did that for a year for amateur dance drama kind of performance stuff. And, um, and then I went to community college for a year and I was taking acting classes there, but I remember being sort of uh, disillusioned with something about it. I think it was like, I felt like 
it was kind of like an insider's club and I wasn't mm-hmm. sure if I would be cast in their roles. And I just didn't really feel like, I don't know. I, I, I wasn't fully comfortable with it. Uh, was so it important? Very long story. Was it important in this time period that you do go on to college, you get a college degree? Like, was this like yeah, I on your mind? Yeah, I definitely felt the, I don't know. I'm not even sure if anybody told me you need to get a degree, but I definitely had that expectation, expectation for myself that I would get a degree. It just seemed like an assum- assumption that yeah. you know, after you go to high school, you eventually go to college. And, you know, my my father graduated college and mother didn't graduate college, but she attended college and, um, you know, like, I, I guess, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, it certainly, like, seemed like the thing to do mm-hmm. or whatever and i don't also don't think i fully i mean now i can look back and try to say oh it was this was meant to be but you know i think at the time it was a lot of flailing around trying to figure out stuff like i remember at one point i was going to national lewis university which is a university mainly a teacher's college and um at the time there was a campus in evanston illinois um, and I got a scholarship there for theater, for acting. It was not a full scholarship. Yeah. It was a partial scholarship. And the first day of classes, they told us that the theater program was being canceled. On your first day? Yeah, like day one. And I had been, <laughs> before that, I had been doing another, like, Baha'i service project where I was in South Africa, actually, for six months. And then I came back, and I, I got to start my life. I got to, like, you know... Um, this is all over the place, like yeah. my mind was. But anyway, um, I, um, yeah, I, I remember, for some reason, I, I, by, I really should have just stopped going to school there at that point because yeah. it was clearly a dead end. But I was like, well, I'm here, and I just went for that semester, right? And I auditioned for other schools, and the only school that was still taking auditions at least that was on my radar was University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign so I applied there I think my mother actually was like oh they're still doing auditions I was like great so I auditioned there I got help from uh, an actress named Gail D'Artez who used to be a Rockford theater actress and she gave me like a lot of audition coaching which was very helpful and they helped me get in actually um Shout out to Gail if she ever listens to this. Um, and uh, But I also applied to DePaul. Mm-hmm. I was going to do American Studies if I went to DePaul because I didn't have time to audition for their theater program. But I was also interested in, like, you know, other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, well, I'll do one of these things. And then when I got into the acting school, I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. Um, so that was exciting to me. So I went to Urbana, but then I started over. I had to start from the beginning. So I was like, you know, 21, I think. And all the stuff you'd done yeah, all didn't of the, carry didn't over. Yeah, it didn't count for the BFA program, which in retrospect was actually probably fine for me in the sense of like, I don't think I handled all the academic stuff that well in college. Um, I, ha- having most of my general education requirements met by the time I got there was good thing it gave me a little bit more space to like you know i guess be an artist or whatever 
Um, were you envisioning, so when you get into this, this program, were you envisioning a future on stage? Like, you're like, I'm going to be a stage actor. Or yeah. I'm going to be like a Hollywood actor one day. Like, did you have a path you know, in, it's your, funny, on, in I your mind? I definitely, yes, definitely stage acting. Um, theater was where it was at for me. And really Chicago was like my mecca. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about New York at all. I wasn't thinking about Hollywood. To me, it was like, you know, where I grew up, in Rockford, Chicago was like the big city. Yeah. It's the first yeah. place that I went to see like, you know, big musicals or whatever. And there's Steppenwolf, there's the Goodman, all these places, you know what I mean? So that to me was like the place. Yeah. So after I graduated, by the way, I got married in the middle of college as well. Um, so when I graduated from undergrad, I was 25 years old, newly married, we moved to Chicago. In I this time acting. period, so you you already are at starting the program at twenty one. Yeah. Older. Yeah. And that age gap is kind of monstrous, right? Like it's just humongous. Even though it's like, you know, freshmen are like eighteen. <laughs> right. Right. But that three years is is huge. Yeah. And uh, did you feel? Uh, did you feel a sense of like separation from your peers? And then you got married in this sure. whole process, like a whole other level of yeah. like separation. I mean, yes and no. I was certainly aware that I was older, but I still felt like they were my peers, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think it was it was definitely like a, it was a conservatory program, so it was very intensive. So, you know, like I didn't feel like I had that much separation but also yes also at the same time I, I remember feeling sort of um i don't know i mean i guess i was self-conscious on some level of like oh i'm older yeah <laughs> you yeah know? yeah so yeah it was definitely different um but you know i don't know who's the same you know what i mean <laughs> i don't yeah. know like life I, is i'm age i'm i mean not so much now but uh I, I used to be more age obsessed because I was the older person in grad school. Yeah. So I always, I always felt like I was the older person. Right. And it was probably in my own head. Like nobody else is like putting that on me. Yeah. But I was thinking about it constantly. Yeah. I mean, I think I really feel like, you know, I don't know. I, so much of what we do is about timing. It's just like, yeah. Uh, when are you ready for this moment, or or wh when is your when do, does your life align for this to make sense? And I don't always think that the age number necessarily determines what that is. Right. I mean, I, I do feel like we are very age. I mean, you know, from a, from from preschool, we're like, okay, you're this age, you go to this thing, and you're this age, you go to that thing. And, right. But I mean, like. Uh, you know, <laughs> things happen when they happen, but I think it's a it's a perspective you gain. Yeah. When you do get older and can can yeah. have some perspective to look back. Yeah. 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 I yeah definitely for me growing up, hitting markers by a certain age felt right important. Right. And and now that I'm older and I look back at that, I'm like so many of those hitting those marks, is just based on like 
luck and privilege and just like things you can't control right and you hear these stories about so and so made it and i'm using air quotes like by 24 right you're just like (laughs) all the shit that had to align (laughs) for something like that to happen for a person is like 30 under 30 or 40 under yeah like all of that stuff it's kind of like bonkers so you were the oldest person in your graduate school yeah okay yeah did that make you feel like out of touch with the other students or did it matter uh i think i i think what made it i think i in some ways i alienated myself okay because i came in like you were talking uh earlier about how you you're uh you weren't that great as a student, right? As uh-huh. an undergrad. Uh-huh. Gro- I was a terrible undergrad, and that's part of that terrible experience. I barely got through undergrad, and having that terrible experience and feeling like I kind of wasted those four years and you know, accumulating, accumulating debt for virtually nothing right. Right. was weighing on me as I got older when I decided playwriting was really important and what I wanted to study. Right. I was so serious. So I got into grad school, and... The classroom was important to me. Reading mm-hmm. those plays and talking about those, everything was super important to me. Right. And I think that had to do with my perspective and my age. Uh, there was a seriousness to me. And like you were making up for lost time? 100%. And I was okay. taking advantage of every single moment in those three years yeah. of grad school. And my, my cohort, had just, they were just very different from that. Um, and yeah. uh, so, it like I think I exhausted my cohort because I ended up having such a dominating voice in the classroom, and so I uh, wasn't aware of it while it was happening. Mm. But it it for sure, in retrospect, alienated me from them. Like here's Brian, like flapping his gums mm. again, right? And then mm. the teachers, you know, as a teacher, right. You love when the student is engaged, yeah, and you kind of eat that up. So, so you feed that, right? And that was happening. Like my teacher was, like our professors were feeding that kind of thing. So it was like perpetuating it. And mm. then my my uh, cohort was a little bit more introverted, okay. And, and and it was it was there were probably a lot of eye rolls from them <laughs> that I wasn't catching. Sure, you know. Um, and then when I I taught as a TA. Uh, I like the separation between freshman and sophomore undergrads and me was like way bigger than than my peers okay. who are also TAs and much closer to the age of the students. Um, gotcha. So I felt that a lot too. Yeah, I mean, I was yeah, I was also I guess older in grad school too. I think when we met, we were both in grad school. Yeah, and yeah, it was definitely like in my thirties in grad school. Um, but you were a cohort of one, right? Well, if there I was remember. two. There were two of us. Okay. Um, at, at Indiana University. So yeah, the other, um, uh, Kelly Lusk, who was the other um, playwright in my year, he had just graduated from um, uh, undergrad at, at at IU. Yeah. So, you know, I mean. But I guess in that case, it doesn't feel, it's like, oh, well, there's only two of you, so, you know, yeah. who cares? But I, I I also think that, like, I wish that school didn't always feel so, I mean, like, I was definitely not good at certain aspects of, like, when it came to 
I don't know, study habits or like writing academic papers. That was kind of a struggle for me. But I definitely, the entire time, whether, whether I was struggling or not, I loved learning so much. Yeah. I was just soaking everything up. And I never want to, I, th- I think I still kind of do that. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons probably why I teach is like I love being around learning and knowledge and different perspectives and people who are engaged in learning themselves. Like all that's so exciting to me. And I just think that somehow we, um, you know, I, I, I was, there's a lot of different philosophies about education and different ways people do different things. But I do think that we tend to take the fun out of so much of education and make it so much about like, something that it isn't yeah and i just like i you know i yeah i I think that like maybe because when i was younger and my mother recognized that i was gonna struggle in certain settings so she ended up teaching at a private school and i was able to go there for free because she was teaching there and it was a school that was like it's called Spectrum School in Rockford, Illinois, and it was basically like um, it was based on Howard Gardner's Seven Intelligences mm-hmm. theory, which is just basically saying that people have different ways that they learn, um, and you have to access different ways, or you have, you have to speak to different ways of learning to find out what the student is receptive to, so they can learn in ways that are productive for them and also so they can like identify the weaknesses and work on them. But it was a lot more, I would say kind, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, than if I would have been at, in public school. And I, did, I went to public school in high school, but I think by that time I had felt I, I was, I was comfortable enough with being who I was as a learner that mm-hmm. succeed or fail or whatever. It wasn't going to throw me off of, the ultimate goal, which is knowledge. What do you think your mom, like what did your mom recognize in you as a, a like in your way of learning as a young person? Like what did she see? I mean, that, probably that? everything, you know, I mean, she's my mother. Like she, she, um, I, I, one specific thing that she said was that there was a public school that she had taken me to visit. I'm not sure what, what this is preschool or kindergarten or whatever, but they were explaining how they, um, the routine in the morning was like they would uh, do handwriting first, and then once the students had finished their handwriting adequately, then they would go to r- the rug for like playtime. Mm-hmm. She was like, "Oh, Nathan's gonna struggle with that because he's bad at handwriting and he gets mm-hmm. frustrated." And like I, I was already like when I was young, I started doing like math, multiplication stuff on my own, but I was not good with like, and I'm still not good at handwriting. Yeah. And so she recognized that I would just have a really hard time in that because I would be like, you know, I would go inward and I would get frustrated and I would be sad and I'd be the last one not finishing the thing. So that was one thing that, that you know, she shared with me at one point. Um, but yeah, it was just kind of about, you know, um, yeah, I, I think that's, that's what you do with kids is you, you watch them and you try to set them up for um, you know to, to thrive as much as as much as possible so you mentioned earlier you came out of undergrad uh, at Illinois and then 
you were married, you moved up to Chicago. Yep. And started a, a life in the theater at that point. Yeah, yeah. I um, auditioned for A Few Good Men, and I got <laughs> cast. <laughs> the, like, the day that I moved there, I think I the audition, and I, like, was late, and I felt terrible. I was late, and the audition was, like, kind of a mess. But then I got the part, and I was like, oh, this is different than college. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it was it's still a thing of, like, as much as I've been talking about all this, like, different ways of learning, I think I was still... Very much. Like I want to do it right. You know, I want to. I want to. I want to. You know, like color in between the lines to show that I am, you know, professional and all this kind of stuff. And so, I, th- I think looking back on it, actually, even in school, I was, I was really struggling with. I think, and I think this is just a natural part of growing up. But you see things as really black and white. When you, you know, when you're younger, and so, I was either you're doing it right or you're doing it wrong. Either you're late or you're early you know what I mean or whatever it is so anyway um, <laughs> I had a, a what felt like a messy audition but I got cast and I was um, my you know like first professional role I think I got paid like 50 bucks for the entire <laughs> mm-hmm. entire run including rehearsals but I felt like I was an actor uh, Liz my wife um, was working an administrative job up in Chicago and um you know, we made very little money, but we didn't have very many expenses, and it was cool. And then, and then, um, but she was pregnant with their first child, and that kind of threw everything for a loop. Um, and fast forward to, you know, I don't know how how far you want to fast forward to, but um, I wrote my first play partially because I was feeling frustrated, both with my acting path as well as with um just like at that time i had two kids now um so it was like 20 2010 where i wrote my first play and i didn't really like never have that play produced or anything but the fact that i wrote it i was like oh i wrote a play you know like it took me a long time to write and i was like yeah (laughs) Um, were you so? Were you were you reading a lot of plays, or were you simply you know just in them like auditioning, performing? I was in performing? them, and I was kind of reading them, and you know, I mean, I I read a lot of plays when I was a student, obviously, and I um, auditioned for a lot of plays. I got to read. I think I the first time I came across uh, Terrell McCraney's uh, brother sister plays, for example, it was an audition when um, when I was in Chicago. I didn't get cast, but I got to read the plays, and I was like, whoa. Yeah. Um, so I think just being engaged in, um, you know, the theater as an actor gave me a lot of, you know, like, knowledge of what was happening. And and I was also, like, kind of writing on the side. Like, if I, w- if I would be doing an acting gig or understudying, I would be like writing my own play and I think I did have this vague idea that eventually I would write plays yeah but it just seemed like this thing even when I was in college this was a point I was trying to make earlier that I just I guess we got sidetracked but like when I was an undergrad I started writing plays then but I just couldn't finish them you know it was like they were like too big for me to like handle um like the ideas were big or the themes were big and I didn't have the skill to like finish them 
but I did have this this sense for myself that oh yeah I'm eventually gonna do that okay and okay. eventually I finally made myself do it after I had children um, and I think some avenues of I mean I think practically speaking life just got a lot more difficult mm-hmm. and I had to ask myself like what do I really want to do with my life you know and it was very clear when I asked myself the question that writing plays was the thing I wanted to do it wasn't even it was like no doubt about that so I was just when I do it and that, that also is not like a practical choice by any means but I felt like you know it's what was motivating you Sorry? like artistically like you were you were more like you know what, what my heart's in putting words on the page than than yeah, performing I mean, on stage you know I, I like I said I, I love theater I love being around it I love the ceremony of it I love what plays do like being in a play being around a play being in the audience listening to you know all of that stuff just I just I love it um, and I, I, I guess I, I did feel like oh, if I can write it I'm gonna feel so much more mm. you know connected to it or part of it I mean if I'm actually the one writing it that seems like the best possible thing you know I mean I don't really know when I have this conscious thought of that exactly but um, you know, I just felt like it was a big challenge to undertake to try to like write stuff and yeah, I don't know. I just I I gravitated towards it, um, and I think I just, I also just felt like I could do it for some reason. Mm-hmm. Like I don't really know why exactly. I mean, I had you know written skits or like short plays or whatever you know when I was younger, and I guess just maybe the cumulative effect of all the hours I spent in theater. I, I, don't, I don't know, but yeah. I felt like, oh, I can do this. Even if, even though it's very hard every time, I, I always have this feeling like, oh, I, this is something I can do, and I want to do it, and I don't know. Not, nothing, nothing is more exciting to me. So. When, I, so when I started writing, I was kind of, kind of self-teaching, and I didn't have a relationship with uh, or even a thought about my voice, right? I had ideas, and I was like, oh, I've got these ideas, and maybe they're kind of clever or whatever, and I was just very focused on ideas. Did you, like, when you started really coming back to it after yeah. having a couple kids, and you're like, I'm going to start writing plays for real now, like, were you conscious of voice? Were you th- What were you thinking in terms of, like, your identity as it relates to what you're putting on the page? Yeah, that's a great question I mean I guess the way that I think about it I don't know that I mean okay like when you're talking you sound how you sound yeah you don't think about what's my voice you just speak yeah and your voice is your voice I think that writing is the same you know you just speak the truth and your voice is your voice. Right. And maybe there's some evolution to, like, I guess, becoming comfortable with um, speaking truthfully or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that that's certainly a thing. But I almost think that, that I, I fear... If I were to try to define like what is my voice, I would be reductive about myself. 
you know? Sure. And my, my voice is, I, I don't know. I don't really know what that means, you know? Like, I, I definitely know like, when I read writing, I certainly can feel a writer's voice or hear it or, you know, I, it comes through, right? But how do you, I wouldn't know how to, how to, like, define it other than the sound it makes the same way if I was to hear, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I think, um, I don't know, you know, I, I, I guess also like to me, listening is a big, I mean, (laughs) this is not breaking ground at all, but yeah, listening is a big part of writing. Right. I mean, I think the first play that I wrote was very much in conversation with like Shakespeare and Elizabethan style, drama because I was very much and still am like very enamored with that style and with Shakespeare's writing and poetry and heightened language and so I think that play probably didn't feel so much like quote unquote my voice because I was doing a lot of imitating which I think is you know normal Uh, I think that with every play that I write, I just try to hear like who is speaking, you know, and I've written a lot of things in different styles. So I kind of want to think that like a voice isn't so much, you know, just how the characters sound or the vocabulary choice. It's like the, the collection of all these different elements that have to do with your perspective on the world and what you feel, what you hear, and what comes out when you reflect that back to the world, you know? I mean, I love uh, your comparison to the spoken voice uh, because my experience of doing, like, recording my voice a lot and hearing it back for the first few times, it's like this sort of cognitive dissonance, right? Like, that's how I sound. Right. But then comparing that to the written voice what what my experience has been uh as a, a early career writer learning how to write is much like i would recognize what my spoken voice sounds like when it's recorded that's mm-hmm. how the world hears my voice developing the same kind of recognition in my my written voice like oh this the realization of oh this is how i sound on the page oh this yeah. is who i am on on the page and taking a journey to get to that spot of, of self-recognition. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You have to be able to hear yourself and become comfortable with, Oh, that's, that's how I sound. Cause yeah, that is a very, like, I don't really get that anymore when I hear myself mm-hmm. recorded, but I, I, d- I remember distinctly those times of like, wait, what? I sound like that. Yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Or in hearing somebody talk about your writing for the first time, mm-hmm. like when you hear yourself described back to you, right? Or in uh, criticism or something mm-hmm. like that, it's just like, what? That's what they got, mm-hmm. right? That's what they're hearing, <laughs> you know? Because in a lot of ways, it's not right or wrong. It's just like this is what people are picking up. You yeah, know? yeah. And it's, and it's just interesting because it might be unintentional, not the thing you're really going for, or maybe subconsciously you just weren't aware of it you know yeah yeah i think in that level it's really important to listen to people 
who like your writing. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not, I don't say that to say that you should have blinders on to criticism or blinders on to negative reactions. Cause I think of course you need to, well, it's important to understand whatever feedback comes is what comes. Right. But I do think in terms of how you can grow, you do have to hear people that like get what you're doing and yeah. appreciate it. Cause they're, they're the ones who are picking up the signal they're putting out. Right. You know, like somebody who's saying, Oh, I didn't like this. What was that about? It is a kind of feedback, but they're not picking up your signal for whatever reason. And maybe there's a way that, okay, I need to make the signal clearer. Or, you know, there's, there's certainly like something that can be gleaned from that reaction. But I think to really refine your voice or your artistry, mm -hmm. you need to listen to people who are picking up the signal, you know, because that's who can tell you what it is. The people who are picking up your signal and actively trying to right yeah. like maybe they're not there but they're 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 working on it yes. you know they're contextualizing how they can to sort of figure it out rather than mm -hmm. uh bumping up against what challenged them or what was confusing to them and stopping right. there you know like that's those are the tough critics to listen to yeah right yeah uh so so you wrote you talked about how you you started to write that first play that it, it wasn't long before you took that leap to go to Indiana. Oh, right. So I wrote one play, and then I wanted to go to Groucho right away. <laughs> I was like, all right, I'm ready. Yeah. And I wasn't actually ready, but – well, no, that's not true. I was ready, but I did not have the accumulated playwriting experience right. to really be competitive uh, for applications for a mm -hmm. lot of places. So I ignored that and applied anyway. And actually, there were some programs, including in the end, that wanted two plays, not one. So I was like, well, I got to run another play. So I wrote <laughs> another play really, really quickly. And, like, yeah. you know, the, the first play I wrote, you know, took me like two years. The second play I wrote took me like two months or something because I just had to get it done so I could send it out for applications. And, you know, I got no play anywhere except for Indiana. I applied to other other places, but uh, there was no... I wasn't the finalist, or I wasn't, you know, getting any type of interest. Um, but Indiana was a program that was just reviving itself. It had taken a hiatus for a while in between um, the retirement of uh, Dennis Reardon, I believe, who was the first... or who, who was, at the time, the um, head of the program. He retired, and then Ken Weitzman, my teacher... Um, brought the program back like a couple of years later. That was the year that I applied. So I think it was really good timing yeah. um, that the program was kind of like coming back and um, it was, you know, like, I don't think Indiana is a place that people are like, oh, I should go there and study playwriting or I should like, you know, because um, of just the location and it, it's not, it doesn't have all the kind of like, I don't know, appeal i guess right um as somewhere like uh, you know yale or ut austin or other you know ucsd or other you know uh graduate programs but i didn't care i was like they're gonna give me uh money free mm -hmm. tuition and 
productions, like I'm good. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that is that's what I need. I need space to do my work. Because I was desperate. I was like emotionally. I was desperate to just be writing. Yeah. And I didn't want to wait. I didn't want to like. Oh, I'll just you know write more and try again. I mean, yes, that's generally good advice. But at the time, I was like, I was feeling desperate. Um, so and it was. It turned out to be really great. I mean, I had a really great experience there. Um, and I think any any place that's going to give you resources and space and time potentially can be a great fit and it was what i what i love about it is that uh you know as you know there are programs who are looking for uh mfa candidates who are already fully formed right right? they've got their shit down they're good because they 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 want to then stamp them and launch them uh, but then there are these writers, you were one of them, going into Indiana, who uh, had something, was raw, right? And so you right. could come into school and really, like, work some stuff out and become the writer you can become through the process of going through school. Yeah. And I think a lot of schools are, like, looking for, you know, one or the other. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I mean... Yeah, and I, I definitely think I know that I was ready, and I think that reflected itself at least in my personal statement, which I don't know if I still have that anymore. Mm-hmm. I wish I could find it, but I know that I felt like, oh, I'm ready for this, and I think that's the biggest thing. You know, are you in a place where this makes sense to you that you're focused on it? Um, that you're because you know, I guess if if you're if if you're going to graduate school, I think at least for something like the arts, you know, you're inviting a lot of challenge into your life. Like, apart from all the financial, you know, like, difficulties of being a student as an adult, and, you know, even if you're um, in a program that is fully funded, which is probably a good idea in, you know, Mm. the theater landscape as it is, or the, you know, arts landscape as it is, but even so, you know, living expenses, like, it's not it's not cheap to be a student, you know? So there's that part of it. But also, you're inviting, like, you're, you're asking to grow personally and artistically, and that's really challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I don't know, I feel like, like, being in a place where you are able to handle that and ready for that and, and wanting that, you know, um, is critical because that's going to determine, you know, how you grow. It's just your, your your own sort of orientation to your own growth, you know. Right. Um, and, yeah, I think that that's why I felt like I was, I was ready for it. And it didn't really matter to me, like, where exactly I was going to be. I mean, it shouldn't say it doesn't matter, <laughs> but it, it does matter. But also I was like. Again, putting out a signal and like a response to it, great. I mean, that's kind of all theater, right? Is like you're trying to communicate something, somebody hears it, they respond to it. Um, so, you know, wh- whether you're doing applications for stuff or whether you're, you know, putting a play on or whether you're writing a play, that's that communication of like, I have this thing that I'm burning to say. Do you hear it? Do you mm-hmm. vibe with it? 
You talked about how you, like, you, you, this transition from actor to playwright yeah. coincided with uh, your second child. Yeah. Uh, how was your sort of, like, parenting or parenthood sort of, evo- like, related to your 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 career because your career has taken you around a lot of a yeah. lot of places geographically yeah. you know from where you where you've lived with your family and traveling yeah. for work and now splitting time between Jersey and Boston like yeah it's been everything really I mean I say my first kid inspired it <laughs> my second kid refined it and my third one accelerated it <laughs> yeah um I, I was in grad school when my daughter eleanor was born she's the youngest and she's almost 10 now um and so like i don't know I, i've never been i've never been a playwright without being a parent so i can't really even mm-hmm. you know what i mean like that's my per- like i don't i don't think that I don't think everybody needs to experience parenthood to be, you know, a fully realized human being. I think right. th- there's many <laughs> ways to invite growth in, in your life. And I think for me, it was a huge part of my understanding of the world expanding mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in ways that I think I hadn't known it could. So... So on that on that way, um, like it's just been, it's always, it's always been together. You know, it's always it's, it's always been like, just part of the journey. Um, it doesn't. It has been challenging, like practically speaking and financially and all those things. It's not easy. It's not been easy at all. But you know, I don't know. <laughs> You figure what, it what, out. What are you gonna right? do? I mean, I, I think yeah. that like a certain. I, I think one thing I can, like, what Liz and I, when we got married, and one of the things that we, um, that we talked about. Like, I, th- I think we both had this understanding that life is a d- adventure, and it's gonna take you unexpected places, and we were kind of down for that. Mm-hmm. And then, like, I think about that a lot because. When we got married, I wasn't even writing plays at all. Right. And now, like, my whole identity is wrapped up in being a playwright. Um, and so, like, I'm literally not the person she married in, in certain ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously, we've been with our kids and everything. We've grown and moved all this stuff. But, um, yeah, it's, like, not – it has not been easy. And I also think there's – definitely a part of this I mean I don't know when I talk to other writers who are women who have children I think they have a different experience in terms of how they might be received or Mm -hmm. the barriers that come up because there's still like a lot of assumptions about what you're able to do what you should be able to do Um, I think as a dad like oh you have kids that's great right dad good job dad actually I remember I was walking around New York City when I first had moved there and I was pushing um, one of my kids in a stroller and the other one was walking next to me and we were just like 
and this guy rolls his one down and was like, hey, you, good job, man, great job. <laughs> Just doing the, <laughs> the bare minimum. It was actually really, it was really sweet. I, I, I appreciated it. it was, I was in Inwood in Washington Heights, but um, I appreciated it. But I was also like thinking, yeah, you know, as a man, I can get a lot of validation just for, like you said, doing the bare minimum. Yeah, right? yeah. So I, I have to acknowledge that as part of as part of it. Um, and um, it's then that allows me like at least some emotional space, even right, to be like, yeah, I'm doing good, and I can also do this thing, you know. And yeah, um, there's a ton of <laughs> a ton of unseen work hours that my wife is putting in, you know. Um, just doing basic things um so it's a team effort you know um but i think that like i know that wasn't the original question was about about yeah like i i think like it's just taken over my life you know what i mean um being a parent and 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 then i gravitated towards teaching which, which um you know is not really parenting but it's Another kind of, I guess, trying to guide people, right? Sure, yeah. Um, and I think in both those scenarios, you're learning from and teaching another person based on their journey and your journey. So that's all. All of that's been really fruitful for my life. I just, you know, I, I yeah. Do your parents have uh, uh, a relationship with your work? Like, do they interact with your work at all? Do they read your plays? Have they come to see your yeah. plays? Yeah, they, they do. <laughs> um, yeah, they. I think they mostly like them. You know, I mean, they've always been nothing but supportive. And I think it was that's one thing that I can say. Like, I have not felt, I have not had to contend with the challenge of having to convince people that love me that this is worthwhile, mm-hmm. um, which I, I know that's a really big challenge for some people. And I've been very lucky that I have not had to have that. And if anything, my parents, I think were like wanted me to not feel pressured to do arts because of their, their right, own background. Yeah. Um, so, so they, they've been, yeah, they, they come to see my, my plays. They're very supportive. Um, and I feel really blessed that that is a thing um, that it that happens, and it's also like an excuse to get people together. You know, if I have a play happening, you know, extended family will come come and see it, uh, depending on the timing or whatever. Um, and that's that's always nice. It's also like it's always a little bit, also just like I don't know awkward i mean i think writing plays and or having a play produced to me always feels really really exposing yeah on a level that i'm still not comfortable with you know what i mean so i don't want to say like i don't feel i don't always feel like in a celebratory mood when i have a play that's happened even though i i do love it and want it to happen but all the stuff around it and feeling like your work is out there and people are seeing it um it also feels like, yeah, it's a lot. It's emotionally, it's a lot. And so yeah. we're still figuring out how to deal with that. But Yeah, you know. it's a vulnerable place to be. Even when you're like the anonymous playwright, I imagine the extra layer of having family there in that moment of vulnerability 
Yeah, it's it's wonderful. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't not want it, but it's also like it's just yeah, it's just a lot of <laughs> a lot of emotions and a lot of like things happening all at once. And then and then like I think when I was an actor, I felt like oh, I'm too. I, I was never comfortable being like instantly vulnerable, like auditioning in a play. Yeah, I think that's part of my difficulty with as a, as a profession was like I don't really f- want to be that vulnerable all the time. And I think in some way I thought that playwriting would be better, but actually it's it is kind of like in the sense that you can show it when you're ready, but then once it's out there, it's actually way more <laughs> exposing because um, you can. Because like that's you. You wrote that on purpose. Mm-hmm. It's all you. So that doesn't really help um, the uh, feeling exposed aspect of it. So you have you grew up in the uh, in the context of the performing arts with your parents, and you have uh, children who are growing up in a similar context with a parent as a writer. Yeah. Uh, do you? Do you feed this to to your children? Are you do you think about this like how do you introduce or not introduce or think about the the, the arts and writing as it relates to them growing up? Yeah, I mean I don't know. I I I definitely don't try to hide it from them in it by any means, right? But I just feel like they have to figure out for themselves what they want to do and I don't really I just don't want to inter- interfere with like I think that like who you become and what you do because I feel like every person is kind of an artist in a sense that we all sort of have to create our lives you know and for some people that might mean you know, being a performer or an artist of some kind. But there's art in everything. There's art in so many things, right? And so I want them to be artists in that sense. But I think for that to happen, it's like a sacred um, journey that I can't interfere with too much, you know? Because I think that it's important that it comes from an authentic place and so it doesn't mean like don't tell them stuff or don't, you know, give them tips or pointers. It's just like I, I want to watch as much as I push, you know, um, and see what they respond to. And and I remember my grandmother, um, my father's mother, told me a long time ago. Um, you know, she's passed away um, a couple years ago, but. Remember she told me, out of the blue, before I had any children or anything, she just told me, like, it's important that you treat every child differently. Because she had, you mm. know, three children. My, my, my father and his two brothers. My, my dad was the oldest. And um, she was explaining how, like, you know, when people see one kid, they're going to have expectations for the other kids based on that kid. And she's like, you have to protect them from that. You can't, mm-hmm. Every child is different. Um, and I was like, okay, Grandma, cool. I mean, like, it came out of nowhere. It seemed like that, but but now that I have three kids of my own, I understand the wisdom of of, of some of that. Of like, yeah, you have to really like let each person become uh, like come into their own, you know, in their own way. So yeah, I don't have any like. I mean, there have been certain things where like 
we never did the whole like take your kid to auditions, commercials, you know, like p putting them into like anything Hollywood thing. We definitely made a choice not to do that because in a way I feel like that would be like they were not old enough to consent to that, I guess, in a certain way. I don't say that to disparage people who have done that. Um, I mean, I think there's ways to do it healthily, but I think for me, I just it's a little bit too difficult for me to manage what that would be. Yeah. Um, so, so I think trying to let them be kids as long as possible, you know, um, like don't don't feel like you have to be an adult right away, and um, you know, take time to learn, and then you'll be who you be. We might stop there. I don't know. I'll find out when I edit this. Okay. But I I ask almost everybody, uh, and for for the first few years, it wasn't even conscious on my part. I think it's just the thing that I'm always thinking about, and I. Uh, so I'm I'm asking most folks now uh, about how they view success, mm. and uh, I'm curious how you view success or what your relationship to. Okay. Success is. Yeah. You know, I've listened to your podcast like every single episode. And I think in my mind, I was like, I'm going to have a good answer when Brian asked me this question. <laughs> and I don't know if I do. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess. Okay. So one thing that I can share. Like I went to. um, I did. A, I did the. Uh, I went to when I. After I graduated from Indiana University, I went to Juilliard and did a two-year fellowship uh, with Marsha Norman and Chris Durang. Um, it was the last few years that they were teaching there before they handed it over. And um, I remember one time Marsha said to everybody, really, really intensely, she looked around the room and said, you have to complete your body of work. Because if you don't, nobody else can. Mm. And that, to me, uh, that definitely made an impression, and it stuck with me, and I've since told other people that <laughs> story, as I'm telling you now. And to me, that... It's not even a success question. It's like a different question. Um... That I think is more important than success. It's it's about like, can I truthfully, you know, follow my, I guess like, the mission I give myself as being a playwright to like, you know, whatever whatever it is that we do when we say we're a play we're a playwright, and I think there's so many like, implications that are behind that declaration of I'm a playwright, right? Mm -hmm. And one of them is there's something I have to say to the world that's valuable, you know? There's something that I have to give that's unique, that's important, uh, that says something about who we are as a people, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think to really own that, once, once you've owned that, then it's okay. Well, are you gonna do it all the way? Um, and so that's what where I am desperately trying to keep my focus. You know, I think like to me like success. 
the most effective way that I can like really define that is just all the all the stuff. It's like it's it's like things that are really not fully under your control, but it's like you know, getting the production, getting the opportunity, getting the fellowship, getting the money, getting like th- that, that. That is success. The way that we, mm-hmm. the way that we f- look at it, right? Right. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that like that is what success, quote unquote, means. But I just don't know how much success matters. It's like. 500 years from now, I don't think anyone's going to care, you know, like, who was successful. It's just like, what work do they leave, you know? And I think that, like, there's, um, yeah, I know the theater is going through a lot right now. (laughs) We're like, um, you know, wondering, like, what is happening? What's the future of this thing? But I, I, I definitely think that, like, it continues to be an important part of the way that we understand reality and people still find value in studying and producing and performing plays and like as playwrights we have a legacy to leave to the world you know like that's what matters um so i think i think the success thing by and large i just think it I mean, there's so many ways you could parse it. Like, well, it's just like, I, I think I think it's a lot of disappointment more than anything, um, because there always could be more than what you have, and I think it's okay if, as long as that fuels you to complete your body of work, you know. Um, so that's what I'm trying to be about. Thank you, Nathan. If you are anywhere near the New York City area, go check out The Refuge Plays presented by Roundabout and New York Theatre Workshop. It is playing through mid-November. Go to roundabouttheater.org for tickets and information. Thank you to Rob Weiner-Kent, Editor-in-Chief of American Theatre Magazine. Music from this episode is by Kevin McLeod. The theme song for the subtext is from International Pen Pal. This episode was produced and edited by me, KJ Jarbo, as our associate producer. And welcome to the end of the episode. Congrats! The play filling me up this month is Six Men Dressed Like Joseph Stalin by Diane Nora. This is such a rad play. I hope everybody produces it.